You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This week is the Republican National Convention, where the Republican Party comes to present something that's not exactly a party platform because they don't have a party platform this year. What they do have is an endorsement of Donald J. Trump for president again. That is literally the extent of the party's platform, a resolution saying they support Trump's America First policies. And now, with it being, well, time to talk about those America First policies, that's what we're going to do today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. It's going to be the greatest, most spectacular, amazing podcast of all time. Uh, you you can't see it, but um, Alex is doing his best Sarah Cooper over here, trying to, <laughs> trying to like do Trump imitations on Zoom in addition to like an actual voice imitation that he just did. Which it was a complete failure. I find that it's like me doing a really bad impression of Colbert's impression of Trump. It's it's not only that. It's also like my Zoom is a little bit shaky for whatever reason. I'm going to call Verizon and have some words with them about my home mm. internet now that I'm finally back at my house after a bunch of, well, being somewhere else for the entire summer where there was a lot less COVID. And now I'm back at my house where there's you know, DC's not so bad, but the country is and the world is not great. And the man in charge of the world's most important country's foreign policy, Donald J. Trump, is uh, he wants to keep running it. God, I I don't even know what to what to make of it this week, right? Like it it almost seems like there's there's not a um a substantive case for Donald Trump's detailed foreign policy, right? When it when when we talk about this and the way the Republicans present Trump's foreign policy, it strikes me that there are two things. There is the uh the the rhetoric that is used surrounding the foreign policy, the objectives that he describes, right? Like get tough on China, bring American jobs back, the get us out of endless wars, that sort of thing. It's all on the party platform. It's all in the Trump statement of objectives that sort of fills in for a party platform that was released separately. Uh, but then there's the actual record of Trump foreign policy. Uh, which is not mentioned, right? There's not like a policy-specific conversation or or set of accomplishments that one can point to as furthering those goals in a detailed and specific, incredible way, right? It because the foreign policy is so haphazard, so internally contradictory um, that it's it's difficult to divine a consistent through line on a lot of policy issues in the way that you'd want to in analyzing a party's worldview. 
So here's what I'd say is uh, is Trump's case for his foreign policy, right? So just to be clear, we're going to talk about whether or not any of this is legit. But I would say that that the Trump case so far of, of what he's accomplished is uh, he's reduced the North Korean nuclear threat. He has uh, significantly cut back on Iran's ability to finance terrorism abroad through reimposing sanctions, pulling out of the Iran deal. He has pushed NATO allies to spend more on their defense uh, and pay more, in the case of Germany at least, pay more in terms of the actual direct spending to NATO. Uh, he has pushed China. He has punished them on several fronts, sanctions, uh, tariffs on trade, sanctions over the Uyghurs, over Hong Kong. That's, I guess, kind of the substantive case that that Trump is laying out, that he has done Wait. these series of things. There's more. Yeah, there is more. Oh, I just want to keep going. But, and, and, all right. And I'm there's go. more. I, Alex doing I'll his best, like, infomercial voice. Sorry, <laughs> let me go. I think it's important that there's more. Military sure. defeat of ISIS, uh, working on a way to conclude a, a deal in Afghanistan, got much closer to Israel, reinvigorated that relationship. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think these are, like, important things that he can continue to say. Uh, got tough on Venezuela. You know, uh, the, these are, the, like... All over the place, um, there are ways that he can doubt successes. But uh, as Jen, I think, was about to say before I interrupted, uh, there's not much substance to a lot of these things. Right. So that gets to the question of, like, how much of these things are true. So I think on North Korea, uh, yeah, they haven't carried out, like, a big nuclear test. Um, but as Alex, you've reported numerous times— They've actually made significant advancements or relatively significant advancements in their missile capabilities and their nuclear program. There's no agreement whatsoever in terms of denuclearization uh, at all. Uh, when it comes to China, yes, those, you know, Trump has done those things and, and they got a sort of a preliminary trade deal. I'm not totally sure what the status is of that. They got like a phase one trade deal with China. Um, but, you know, Yes, he has pushed China on Hong Kong and on the Uyghurs. Um, that doesn't seem to have have had any actual impact uh, so far, but it is relatively new. Yeah, Jen, I, I, can I can I drill down on that because I think yeah. that that's that's a really uh, a really good example of what I was talking about a few minutes ago about it being difficult to to define a through line here. Take even just like not the issue of China in general, but the sub issue of the treatment of the Uyghurs. Right, so you've had at a like below presidential level, primarily a series of policy initiatives that have, in fact, uh, attempted to draw attention to the horrible things China is doing in Xinjiang. That has tried to to punish uh, people in China for this behavior. But then you also have the president, according to John Bolton, uh, telling Xi Jinping that he's doing the right thing in a in a personal conversation by creating these camps for Uyghurs. You have. Uh, the president, in general, talking about uh, how impressed he is with the Chinese government and how Xi is a partner uh, with him uh, on a variety of different things. We, we saw this on the coronavirus, too, which has now switched to being the China virus in, in Trump's telling uh, because he feels like it's convenient to blame on China. But at the beginning, he was saying China was doing such a great job and we're so proud of them. And that's great. They have it under control, right? And this isn't just like a responsivity to facts, right? Like he thought China was doing well, and then all of a sudden, obviously, they weren't, and so now they're not. It 
it's a general lack of a coherent position on China, despite finding it a politically useful boogeyman. It's that there's a dissonance between the way that Trump likes to be friends with the Chinese dictator and the way that he has, and he has for a long time, going back to Tiananmen Square, admired crackdowns on human rights inside China. Like, admired. I, I use that word specifically. Right? He talked about how Tiananmen Square showed strength um, in in. God, that was a while ago. I can't remember the year that he said that. There's just not a coherence, a gel between what you see from the executive and what you see from other people in the government who are trying to act on various different aspects of administration rhetoric. I want to push back on some of that. Um, So, like, let's say you're Joe Biden, right? And your entire platform on dealing with China is, well, we have to be tough on a lot of areas, but there are places where we need to cooperate, like climate change and trade. Um, so if you're Trump, you're doing somewhat the same thing, although a lot more brusquely, uh, you know, much more haphazardly, but you are still saying, well, we should go after them for the Uyghur, the treatment of the Uyghurs and Hong Kong and et cetera, et cetera. But we still have to be very tough with them on a bunch of other areas. So you're able to have this sort of dual track policy that seems to be quite popular across both parties. As for somewhat coherence with Trump, I think, you know, as we talked about on our live show, I, I would argue that maximum pressure is sort of the through line in his policies, um, whether it's on Iran, whether it's on China, whether it's on Venezuela, whether it's really anywhere. Um, <laughs> on our allies. On our allies, right? Like, and you can just see this in his own personal interactions. Like on Twitter, if you're mean to him, he will maximum pressure you by calling you names or, you know, giving you a nickname or whatever it is. Like, it's just his belief that if you are just tough on something, if you're just consistently tough on something, you will get what you want. So there is a through line. There is an ideology. Whether you like it or not is a separate issue. I agree but- with you uh, to a really strong degree, except for one really glaring kind of outlier, which is Russia. Uh, that was the next thing I was going to bring up. Yeah. Well, yes. Like, in that case, it's like the opposite. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. The administration has tried to do some things against Russia, admittedly, you know, arming Ukraine, although there were some issues with quid pro quos there, which I won't get into, <clears throat> impeachment. But in general, like, Trump is, like, super resistant to being at all, like, personally tough on Russia to the degree that it's, like, minimum pressure is his approach to Russia. But if I, if I, and I totally agree with that. Um, just, again, having read his books and sort of hearing him speak, I, I think, well, well, one is, let's just say, he's remarkably consistent on this, right? Like, now, why he's consistent is a separate issue, but it does seem that this is one thing that he's constantly like, well, the policy I want as president is a nicer relationship with Russia. Now, he'll consistently say, I've been tough on Russia. His administration has, but- I mean, in terms of why, he does think that they have the most beautiful women. That, I'm sure. uh, But also, and this is just conjecture uh, on my part, but uh, as we've, you know, as I've written about and we've talked about, like, he's really scared of nuclear weapons. And my guess is, like, he maybe wants just like if we're bad with Russia, nuclear war comes back because who knows? Um, there could be a, multiple other reasons, but that, that's just one that I think is, is is a possibility. But anyway, point is like there is a through line to Trump. I, I think there is an ideology. It's just really odd. I mean, I don't know, but even like on all of these issues, one can point to various different things that are internally contradictory, right? You have Trump in one interview when he's asked about potentially expanding America's arsenal, nuclear arsenal. He says, let there be an arms race, as if he's not concerned about the expansion of nuclear weapons and raising the risk of nuclear war. His administration has worked uh, to put on new weapons that some experts believe 
potentially have the risk of making nuclear war more likely, like no low-yield nuclear weapons, um, attaching them, putting them on a submarine, which you can make the argument that it would lower the risk of escalation. But if you're really scared of nuclear weapons at some kind of like gut fundamental ideological level, you wouldn't want to be building new ones, right? That would lead you towards an anti-nuclear consistent policy, not some kind of like brinksmanship hawkishness that you hear from the kind of people who advocate putting on low-yield weapons on a nuclear submarine, Right, and it's issue after issue like this. On North Korea, he was really tough until all of a sudden he wasn't, and he's sending love letters to Kim Jong-un despite not getting any substantive And Elton John CDs, by the way. And Elton John CDs, that's right. It's like, it's it's not, Alex, that I don't see, because, you know, I said this in our last, our live episode, as you said, I agreed with you, that there's a real uh, addiction to using uh, bluster threats and pressure as a tool of foreign policy often and including economic sanctions. I just don't think that there is a cogent set of goals that is consistently pursued by doing so. There's not like a through line and consistent strategy in Trump's foreign policy that one can identify. It's just sort of like jumping from one thing to the next and changing one's mind based on, uh, you know, whatever whatever he feels like that day. So I'd like to posit an alternate explanation or grand strategy uh, and that is whatever Obama did, I'm going to do it better. There is that. And I feel like that definitely helps explain, maybe not everything, but it definitely helps explain a lot of the deal making. You know, it goes back to Trump as like art of the deal. Like I'm the the grand deal maker guy. That's my best Trump impression apparently. Um, but, you know, it, he, you know, especially with the, the Iran deal, right? Well, the, the Iran deal is terrible. It was bad but I'm going to make a deal with Iran, right? It's not that he like doesn't want to have a deal with Iran. He wants to have a better deal. Uh, he, you know, it's not that he doesn't want to have nuclear arms agreements with Russia. He wants to have a better one that also includes China. It's not that he didn't want NAFTA. He wanted a better one that included, you know, additional, I don't know, some measures. Uh, and he got that to some degree. It's a slightly barely improved NAFTA. But, you know, not that that was an Obama administration thing, but it is, you know, very much this kind of like, whatever you can do, I can do better kind of approach. Um, and I think, you know, in particular, in a lot of ways, like that's why he was elected, right? Is that, you know, there's this history, not even just Obama, but going back further of, you know, the swamp or, but, you know, the establishment approach that isn't working. We need to redo it, you know, with China, engagement isn't effective. So we need to be tougher with North Korea, whatever we've been doing with these low level kind of trying to have talks and all of this is not working. So I'm just going to go meet with him one-on-one. All of these kind of approaches, I think are very much like, I'm just going to do something whatever different and I'm going to follow my gut. I'll posit one more sort of grand strategy that I think connects it all. It's so that much he, positing. Is that he has genuine thoughts on how the world should be and has zero interest in seeing out that world and doing the work that it takes, right? Yeah. So I think I think one thing we need to parse out is like, does he have an ideology? I would say he does. Does he have a strategy to see that world? He does not. Um, he does not care about the policy details. He does not care about putting in the actual work. He does not care about reading his briefings. He's not Wait, care you about mean Jared briefings. Kushner isn't a strategy? <laughs> Right, like you know, send it to Jared is not is a, is a is a way to get things done, but not necessarily like the the way to get things done. And so th- this is where I think Trump falters is that at first a lot of his ideas are faulty and probably ill thought out, but he does have ideas. They he does have a a vision, a worldview. It's just he he doesn't necessarily care about whether or not it comes true, but he will pursue that ideology um, to the extent that he cares about it. Yeah, and I think in terms of whether it comes true, I think 
I think he settles for symbolic victories, right? Whether or not they're substantive victories is a different question. I think he cares that he has like a policy win. So, you know, he has this kind of fake agreement between the U.S. and North Korea. I don't say fake. You know, I say fake meaning it had a lot of nice words, but neither side really committed to anything. Uh, but he says that North Korea committed to something. So he can show that they did this thing, even though it's not actually happening. Um, I think he would probably be happy with an Iran deal that looked really good on paper, but maybe wasn't super great in terms of, you know, mechanisms to actually carry it out or inspections and things like that. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of it is is he has this vision. He likes, you know, reality show unveilings of big, grand, sweeping policies. But when it actually comes down to whether those policies are implemented or actually do what he says they're doing is when it kind of all falls apart. At the risk of over-intellectualizing this, um, the, <laughs> God the, forbid. The, the way that I understand Trump's foreign policy is, uh, is, is sort of best as an exercise in, uh, like, Jean Baudrillard's philosophy, those of you who aren't uh, familiar with Baudrillard, he's a French thinker largely associated Quickly type it with, into Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> with, with, uh, um, con, you know, continental, post-structural, post-modern theories. And, and the, one of the big themes in Baudrillard's work is that uh, our reality as we understand it is mediated and replaced by representations of reality. Uh, so he has this this really famous book called The Gulf War Did Not Take Place, which is not literally arguing that the Gulf War didn't happen. It is arguing that the representations of the Gulf War in media serve to stand in as the reality of the Gulf War for lots of people. So the actual reality of what was happening, what the U.S. military was doing uh, in Iraq at the time did not penetrate. It almost didn't matter to the people who are consuming this as a televisual experience, given how all-consuming uh, media was at the time and how, at the time, CNN and, and 24-hour cable news was a relatively novel innovation. With, with all that sort of in mind, Trump's foreign policy is, is an exercise in a kind of Baudrillardian positioning, right? What he wants— Took the words right out of my mouth, is, —is to convey— a representation of accomplishments. The actual underlying reality of accomplishment does not matter in the way that that we've been you normally talk about it. Like to the Obama administration, it was very important the Iran nuclear deal actually had a series of specific provisions that would operate in the way that they were intended. That's why they took like a million years negotiating them. Um, the Bush administration, every prior administration tended to care to a degree uh, and a differing degree, depending on issue to issue, but like on, you know, the actual concrete nature of the accomplishments. What Trump has done is turned foreign policy into a television show, right? It it makes the the representation of it, the depiction of it, more important in what they want and what they get than actually doing the things that they say that they do. I, I think that's an interesting point, and, and perhaps the greatest manifestation of that would be his um, first meeting with Kim Jong-un in Singapore, in which, if you listen to John Bolton's book, or if you care about it, um, what he basically said was Trump told him, like, look, I just want the photo op, I want to sign this little piece of paper, and then I just want to get out of here. Like, he did not want to actually really do the hard work um, to negotiate with Kim, to really get what he went there in theory to get. Um, of course, there was a lot of work that did not get done before that meeting, but still, um, like that for him, it was just the notion of having the the sit down that was exciting enough. That was the 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 aura of success that he sought, not the actual like, well, what missiles are they going to you know dismantle, et cetera, et cetera. Like that was the goal, just to have the meeting and and brag about having the meeting in that piece of paper. I think 
there are a few other things that I, I feel like we've left out. And one, and I think it really fits this kind of broader point that that you, Zach, were making and Alex, you're elaborating on. Um, and I would say, you know, the killing of, of Qasem Soleimani, um, Iranian major general, I, I feel like, you know, that felt at the time uh, to many like a very significant, you know, policy decision. I mean, it was a very big decision to take out one of the senior leaders of in the Iranian government military kind of apparatus. Um, but in terms of whether that had a longer term impact on policy, I think remains to be seen. And so far, you know, hasn't necessarily had, I, I guess, the the impact that we thought it would, although it's not totally clear what they thought it would produce. You know, they said at the time it would restore deterrence. Um, I don't think that we've seen that happen so far. We definitely continue to see attacks, you know, by Iranian-backed militias in Iraq on, on U.S. positions and, you know, Iraqi positions where U.S. forces are are located. You know, again, I think that's kind of this this question of whether that was mostly just symbolic, also going back to the, you know, Obama didn't do it, so I'm going to do it, right? Obama, you know, declined to to take that step and and target Soleimani, whereas Trump said, no, oh, he didn't do it. Okay, well, I'll do it and targeted him. So I think, again, you know, that question of like, yes, these are these big symbolic kind of gestures, but whether there's the broader substantive kind of policy underlying it, again, remains the question. He hasn't bombed Iran, though, which Obama did not do. Correct. But Obama, you know, also didn't start a nuclear war and Obama didn't, I don't know, blow up the moon. Like there's lots of lots of things I'm, that, I'm just, that are not I, on the table. Sure. I'm just saying that like, while I agree that there's a lot of Obama did, did or didn't do it, therefore I will do the opposite. There are certain pretty notable exceptions to that rule. And so like, I, I, I guess I'm just trying to impart the point that Trump had, again, that Trump really does have his own sort of worldview. A lot of it is informed by what the previous president did and his own sort of animosities. But there really is sort of a through line. And I think should he get a second term, we'll see a lot of that like and more, um, right? Because at some point he has to run on something that he cares about and that he believes and owns. Um, and that's what a second term Trump foreign policy would look like. And and we're going to take a break here because that's that's what I want to talk about in the second half. What would happen or what we think might happen in the event that Trump does win in November. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise... 
the future of work. Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about Trump's foreign policy and what to make of this first term. Uh, we, we had a lot of different theories, a lot of different views, but I, I want to move forward and talk about what would happen in the, you know, it seems unlikely, but is certainly still within the realm of possibility that you'd get a second Trump term. Uh, and to start off the conversation, I, I want to bring up something that has has come up again and again when I've been working on this issue. You know, I wrote a big piece about the nature of America's alliances and the value of them. Uh, this is a bit ago now uh, in terms of the maintenance of, of global peace and stability and so on. And one thing that came up when you talk to people who know about uh, America's core relationships, things like ties to uh, NATO allies or to Japan, South Korea, those kind of really important binding alliances, is that while one term of, of Trump could seem like an aberration to these allies, two terms of Trump could very much transform the way they understand their relationship with the United States. By which I mean they would no longer believe that they can orient their national security strategies around an American hegemon or superpower that was willing to defend them and rather have to start treating the United States as an unreliable provider of global security and an unreliable partner in general. And that would force them to, to reevaluate really fundamental things that have been in place, like the importance of something like NATO or these alliances or, you know, maybe even demilitarization in uh, former Axis powers, right, and need to move towards more independent military capabilities. Uh, that all strikes me as extremely scary, and I, I'm curious as to whether you think that that's a plausible outcome or result of a Trump victory in November. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, Corey Jackie of the American Enterprise Institute told me something that I thought was very interesting because I looked into this exact issue for my Trump piece, which will come out, uh, Trump's second term foreign policy piece, which will come out at some point this week. Um, and it's basically along the lines of like the most important foreign policy decisions made in Trump's second term will not be made by the United States. They will be made by America's allies and other countries as they are starting to reorient around the idea that they can't trust America anymore, right? So uh, one could assume, or it does seem that a bunch of countries view Trump's win as sort of like a blip in the sort of history of American foreign policy, especially since 1945. A second win would tell a bunch of allies, especially as you mentioned in Europe and South Korea and Japan, that it, there's a mandate, there's a popular mandate um, for Trump's vision of sort of America first and alone and, and not really needing allies to only work with allies when it most suits America as opposed to sort of this collective global presence and, and strategy. And so that is what really is at stake here is not only the system of alliances, the U.S. will still have allies and friends and they will work together in many areas, but the sort of close coordination, the, the notion that America is this backer of this benevolent superpower in many instances, while there'll still be disagreements, that'll be gone. Like that, that sort of linchpin of the post-45 strategy is gone. Um, and I don't think it's too dire a picture to say that. I think that that is somewhat is at stake on the ballot is do you want the U.S. as the global guarantor working with allies to solve global problems, or do you not? Do you believe, as Trump does, that it should be individual sovereign states doing whatever they need to do, work together when it most suits each other, but otherwise it's anarchy? Um, 
that's what Trump believes and that's what's uh, on the ballot, frankly, and that's what's at stake because you are going to have a bunch of these countries, as, as Zach rightly noted, um, start to kind of think differently about how they feel towards the United States. Yeah, I think there are two things there. The first is the idea of a mandate, right? And that is, you know, one of the reasons I would definitely not say the the only reason or even the main reason, but it's definitely one of the reasons Trump was elected was, you know, this idea that America shouldn't be the world's policeman, right? That it shouldn't be the world guarantor of of world peace and, and of stability around the region, um, around the world, rather. You know, so there is that idea, right? That I could see that, yes, they're saying, oh, a second Trump term would be, clearly that's what the American people want. But I think it's, it's also just more prosaic in a way. It, it's the sense that Literally after four years, like you can wait out four years, right? Four, four years isn't that long of a time in terms of the grand scheme of the world and how institutions work, but almost a decade is, right? And I think in just basic, like actual, like the way time works, the way institutions work, at a certain point, these things that Trump has done, right? Like pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords or pulling out of the World Health Organization or pulling out of, you know, nuclear arms deals, things like that, those can be reversed pretty quickly quickly if somebody else is is elected in this coming election. But if he's reelected, like those things will go through and more time will pass and more, you know, other institutions will rise up uh, to take their places uh, and things like that. And so you are actually going to see just in very practical terms, the world kind of having to move on rather than saying, look, we could have tried to, you know, wait Trump out for a year, see if something else comes along. Um, you could see, you know, that with Iran, maybe saying, look, look, let's just wait it out and see if we can get, you know, a Democrat back in the office who will maybe work with us more, go back to the Iran deal. But if, if there's another four years, you're going to have very clear, practical, you know, things happening in terms of timelines, in terms of, you know, deadlines for, for deals. And you're going to see actual practical changes. Jen, that is a fantastic point. Um, I hadn't thought about it in such, well, practical terms, but it. It, it is right, right? Like, it, let's say you're Iran. I, li- I like that example because it's really concrete. Uh, sure, the U.S. may be out of the nuclear deal right now, but and Iran may not be complying with the nuclear deal, but in the world where you have a president who might be more uh, willing to, to play ball, that is to say Joe Biden, they could get back into compliance with the deal's terms pretty quick, which is in their interests, and it would be in a Democratic administration's interests. So I think there's a plausible case that the Iran deal would come back together relatively quickly. But after four years of Iranian noncompliance thanks to American withdrawal, well, that's going to be much, much harder to reverse all of the progress that they've made. They will have there's, – there's a lot of path dependency in foreign policy, right? Mm-hmm. Like once, once you've gone down a certain road for a certain period of time, it's really difficult to reverse the steps that you've already taken because they've changed the world in so many specific ways with all of these different knock-on effects. Um, and all of these different constituencies that have built up in favor of whatever the policy approach is that you've been supporting in whatever country you are down the line. So it, it really does seem to me that four more years of Trump would lock in some of the things that people have been warning about um, and concerned about, about his erraticism um, having uh, a real destabilizing effect in global politics. And this is where I think a big question comes into play is it, is it deals with erraticism and allies is like – how bounded has Trump really felt by needing a second term, right? Like, has his thoughts of, of of going through this election made him not take certain decisions or pull back from taking certain decisions? So let's take a pretty concrete one that goes with what we're talking about. NATO. Does he withdraw from NATO or does he not? Um, now, there are some people who would say, look, Trump has never felt bounded and he does what he wants. Um, in fact, he's happier with NATO now because they are spending more, so he wouldn't pull out. That's 
really just a way for him to sort of force allies to get tougher and deal with their own defenses. There's some who say that. There are others who would say, um, and, and even in John Bolton's book again, where he was like, look, Trump was literally a sentence away from withdrawing until I told him not to. There are some who would say, look, Trump doesn't want to be in NATO. He said repeatedly he doesn't want to be in NATO. Even to this day, he still doesn't want to be in NATO. But he knows that there's kind of a popularity to it. And and so he needs to wait until a, you know, a second term in order to do so, because then who's going to sort of bind him politically? Uh, and even though a bunch of Republicans would be upset with it, what are they going to do? You know, the election's over. So um, that is one consequence and one possibility is that, the and, and, and my piece goes into a lot of things that Trump could withdraw from, uh, but NATO is probably the biggest one. There are people predicting that NATO's done, and, and it would not surprise a bunch of experts if the U.S. left NATO in a second Trump term. I kind of disagree with that a little bit. Not that I think that Trump wouldn't do it, but I don't think there's a huge, like, constituency in terms of, like, domestic politics that's, like, a big NATO like, I don't feel like that's a huge election issue, right? Like, if Trump wanted to pull out of NATO, I don't think he's like, I'm going to lose Florida, um, you know, or I'm going to lose I'm gonna lose working class voters in Pennsylvania if I pull out of NATO. But I do think just the time factor, the fact that, you know, if Trump keeps trying to pull out of NATO, he keeps saying it over and over, like, at a certain point, it's going to come to, you know, a point where somebody's not there to say, literally, please don't do that. Like, just don't. And it could happen. Um, but I think there are issues, and we've seen this in, you know, historically in foreign policy, where where domestic constituencies really do matter. And I think, you know, on, on the Israel issue, that's historically been something that, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict has been something that presidents historically took on in their second terms for the very clear reason that, you know, it's easier to push Israel uh, and try to, you know, be tougher on them and try to push them to make concessions um, to the Palestinians in terms of, you know, any kind of potential peace agreement. It's easier to do that in a second term if you don't worry about a domestic constituency of people who, you know, support Israel. There are some issues, I think, that do have very clear kind of constituency issues. But I, I still, you know, I, I don't totally think that foreign policy is not just something that American voters are super interested in particularly in this election. I mean, yes, you know, post-George W. Bush, second term, right, post-Iraq war, well, still in the Iraq war, but, you know, that was very much something that that helped Obama get elected, though obviously not the only thing, but his opposition to the Iraq war and his promise to bring troops home. But now, you know, I think most people forget that we're still in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So my understanding of the political science research on elections and foreign policy is that foreign policy tends to matter primarily when the U.S. is in a large-scale conflict with a large number of casualties. And so the United States is not in a war of that kind right now. We're in a lot of low-intensity conflicts in lots of different places. Um, the extension of the so-called forever war, which Trump seems to like sometimes say that he's going to stop and then escalates in a lot of ways by like removing restrictions on the use of force. And anyway, that that's more of the incoherence that I was talking about last time. But it, it strikes me that it's not electoral constraints that matter in, in a second term concern so much as it is um, legislative and, and optic concerns, by which I mean, there are lots, there's a lot that Republicans are, are willing to do for Trump. There is almost an infinite variety of things Republicans are willing to go along with, uh, especially in culture war issues. But I don't know, something about withdrawing from NATO, which is something that so many Republicans care on Capitol Hill care so much about, suggests to me that you would get a real backlash from the Lindsey Grahams and Marco Rubios of the world, mm, the people who are yeah. like Trump enablers consistently and really important in the Trump enabling project because they provide institutional Republican cover. 
Um, and th- those people, I think, would rebel. What would that rebellion look like? Uh, it would look bad for Trump. And I don't think it matters so much in terms of trying to get laws passed because that's not really the goal so much as he really hates looking weak and undermined and threatened. And there is a risk that this kind of policy move uh, would make him look humiliated because his whole party, not his whole party, but a large chunk of it would would get really mad about him publicly and there'd be a huge undermining um, of his public image. At the same time, though, uh, one thing that we know about Trump is that he often doesn't do things with a lot of prior thought or, you know, <laughs> gaming out the third level consequences of things like this. And he just sort of does stuff, right? Like that Bolton example of him maybe withdrawing from NATO with a sentence until Bolton stops it or trying to, right? He, like, he tries to do stuff. And with foreign policy, when you say stuff that the the literal act of saying it becomes reality, Right, it it brings into being certain changes in the way that people understand you, and and can often even tra- legally transform or, or functionally transform the nature of one country's relationship with another one. So Trump just like blurting something out, something like catastrophically destabilizing, and I think withdrawing from NATO would be that. Though obviously there's some disagreement about this among, um, especially like restraint inclined foreign policy experts. Uh, I think especially doing it without any laying any groundwork or a more sophisticated alternative for how the U.S. relationship with Europe would operate could uh, could make things very bad. I, I just want to point out just quickly that John Bolton obviously <laughs> has, uh, you know, good reason to make himself look like the guy who saved NATO. You know, to look good like the, good point. The, you know, the uh, the adult in the room that, you know, if it weren't for me whispering in his ear— like, NATO would be over and the world would end. So I just want to say, like, I'm going to, you know, I trust John Bolton as about as far as I can throw him. But I do think it is in line with Trump's broader, you know, I don't think there's any question that Trump has wanted to pull out of NATO. Uh, just whether or not it was John Bolton at the last minute pulling his, like, you know, his coat collar back with a little hook. I don't know if that that's necessarily the most accurate portrayal. But I want to talk about, you know, surprisingly, uh, I want to talk about Iran and what could actually possibly happen going forward. You remember uh, a million years ago, back in January, uh, late December and early January, we kind of all thought that we might be on the brink of going to war with Iran. It was really scary. And, you know, earlier in the show, Alex, you mentioned the fact, or Zach, one of you, I don't know, I I get you two mixed up. Um, But (laughs) dudes, you all look alike to me. Uh, but, you know, talking about how, you know, Trump chose not to bomb Iran, right, uh, and chose, you know, despite maximum pressure, that there was a line he wouldn't cross. And I think that's interesting when talking about, you know, would there be, you know, what are the prospects for Trump to make an Iran deal, you know, in, in his next term? He has promised within his first uh, month, I think, he said that he's going to get going to get an Iran deal. It, it's not really a promise. It's more like just like, watch, you bet I'm going to do it in the first month. I could totally do it. You know, Is Trump a surfer, dude? Yeah. Look, I never said I could do Trump impressions. I don't even try. I just yeah, do weird. Bruh. I just do weird other accents instead. Yeah, bro. Totally gonna get another nuclear deal in that I, first month, bruh. No idea what happened there, but that's where we are. But you know, I, I do think there's a, a an open question of you know whether Iran, you know, Iran can go one of two ways. China can go one of two ways in terms of escalation, uh, or in terms of you know de-escalation or potentially making a deal or or something. I kind of want to get, you know, I I know where I stand on that. I think it's, I I don't know. I think it's pretty unlikely, 
Um, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Trump could make a, at least some sort of kind of cosmetic deal with Iran, whether or not it actually does all the things that they say that they want in terms of ballistic missiles, in terms of the nuclear program, in terms of support for terrorist groups. Like, I don't think that's likely. What y'all think? I think that in, in terms of Iran, a second Trump term would put us back to where we were during the second Bush term, um, which was an increasingly scary choice between the United States letting Iran get uh, close to a nuclear capability, if not outright getting one, or launching some kind of uh, preemptive or preventative strike to stop Iran from getting this kind of nuclear capacity, right? Like there, maybe there'll be this kind of face-saving pseudo agreement, but I doubt it. I don't think the Iranians are interested in helping Trump save face, to put it mildly. Um, and so I think we would just end back, back to that awful choice that was, I think, legitimately very scary. The Obama people used this to sell the nuclear deal, and people accused them of blackmail. Like, the only choices aren't this nuclear deal or war or a nuclear Iran. And I was like, well, those those kind of were the only choices. Some kind of agreement that would be acceptable to the Iranians or else truly awful background choices. Sanctions weren't going to last forever, and and I I think we could be thrown back into this particularly dangerous, chaotic situation. I mean, it's definitely possible. Uh, I, I guess I just want to—I'll oh, put it this way. Obviously, a second Trump term will be like America first on steroids, right? Like, like that's what's going to happen. Um, everything that he has believed and, and said and wanted to do, I think he's going to push pretty hard on that, knowing that there are fewer political constraints. When it comes to Iran, I think he'll, he'll push for uh, a deal. I do think, though, in a second term, um, Iran is going to have a new president. Uh, in 2021, Hassan Rouhani will be gone. And so it depends. I think a lot of that, what happens in Iran depends on who that new president is, right? Rouhani I'm hoping a, for Ahmadinejad. I'm kidding. I'm sure you are. That's uh, a joke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, right, Rouhani, for legacy reasons, is not going to want to be the president who signed and then lost the Iran deal. Um, the next president may not have those feelings. In fact, definitely won't have those feelings. And so Trump has his own views, but obviously the enemy gets a vote, so to speak. Instead of maybe painting a massively dire picture, uh, I think there are some positives to the second Trump term. So let's try to go into that yeah. for a second. Um, one could be, uh, you know, China is definitely waiting out Trump in the moment, but hoping that Biden comes into play. One could imagine that, you know, again, a decade of Trump would cause China to rethink maybe future trade deals, have to make certain concessions. They might not have to, but... Um, one could imagine there'll, there'll at least be that conversation. With Biden, I don't think they'll have that conversation. You could also imagine um, European nations, maybe to put a positive spin on this, if they are worried about what America might do, they will spend more on defense and perhaps have a more cohesive European identity as to how to protect the continent from myriad threats, uh, which could possibly be a good thing. In fact, there are some experts I spoke to who thought that was a good thing um, in a second Trump term, that the sort of um, you know, they have to like cauterize the wound in a sense by um, coming together. You could imagine uh, certain dictatorial uh, regimes worried that they'll be next, right? If Trump has a sort of through line, maybe except Russia, he kind of cares about pushing back on like the Venezuelas of the world, the Irans of the world, um, the Chinas of the world. It's it, these are some there's some thoughts off the top of my head, but like th there are some potential positives here of what he could do, and I would assume also certain terrorist organizations are not going to want to be so out and open because they know Trump is going to bomb them. So, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are some, it's not a completely dire picture, although I think it would, there are a lot of other things we could discuss that I, I feel like a second Trump term would be bad foreign policy wise, but it, it ain't all bad. One point I want to raise kind of really quickly, I'm kind of wondering who's going to be in the foreign policy establishment going forward. Yeah. Um, because after four years of Trump, we've kind of already gone through the roster 
and we're starting to run out of folks in terms of, you know, credible foreign policy hands with any experience uh, and, a you know, that plus a willingness to actually serve in a Trump administration, right? You know, at the beginning of his first term, we saw, you know, people like Fiona Hill and, you know, actual kind of policy experts willing to put aside partisan views or, you know, never had partisan views and just, I'm a civil servant. You know, you could see, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman and all of these people um, who were just kind of the <laughs> the deep state, if you will, but, you know, the, the foreign policy kind of experts who run the day-to-day stuff. Um, but a lot of them have been run out of the administration for one reason or the other. Um, and, you know, Trump is pretty notorious for being rather ugly to people who leave and displease him. Um, so I'm kind of kind of concerned and worried about, you know, who's left, right? Are we going to see, you know, more fringy type of people? I mean, we already saw Mike Flynn, you know, he was the national security advisor. He was already kind of fringy, but he still had a background at DIA. But now, like, are we down to what, Sebastian Gorka? Like, are we going to start seeing QAnon people in the Defense Department? Like, who's going to work for him for the next four years? Okay, so my my theory is that we will have Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and National Security Advisor Jared Kushner. All three jobs at once. No one's ever done it. That's what's going to happen. Well, I am definitely I mean, seriously I, I, predicting this and not making a joke. Definitely. I Actually, I would say Pompeo goes to Kissinger route and goes National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. Uh, it's definitely I, not outside the realm of possibility. Trump likes to have, you know, dual and triple-hatted officials. Okay, I really was outside, kidding. It is outside the I realm thought that my tone <laughs> indicated that I was kidding. No, no, no. I don't mean Kushner. I was agreeing with the Pompeo <laughs> point that he could be National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah. That, I actually that one, agree that, with that. Yeah, I think that one is very, very likely. I mean, <laughs> the, the, he, is the, he is the big survivor of the administration. I, I do think you make a good point. There is a there is a massive stable, stable of um, initial never-Trump like letter signers who signed on to those um, letters before the first before the first Trump term that basically did it. I've talked to a lot of them that basically did it because they thought Trump wasn't going to win, and now many of them are trying to claw and get back in. Yeah. Um, I won't name names, but that's right. But humiliating, right? But like, if you're listening to this, you know who you are. We've talked about it. But a lot of them won't get back in uh, because one of the first things that like the personnel office asks is, did they sign the letter? And if they did, they're they're sort of banned from life. So that that is actually kind of one interesting question I have in a, in a second Trump term is for that exact personnel reason, um, does the Trump administration give up on the sort of like ban of never Trumpers because they have no one left? Or as I would su- expect, Trump does not forgive and there are fewer professionals and in fact, more sort of like sycophants in the administration that in the end kind of give Trump what he wants, which convert then um, allows Trump to kind of do the foreign policy that he sees and, and, and wants. And that's uh, that's where I mostly get my worries from. Like those who say, well, he's been, he hasn't been bounded. Well, he has. I mean, we have seen him like try to withdraw from Syria and other countries um, and like get rocked by people in the Senate or people in his administration, try to withdraw from the U.S.-South Korea free trade agreement and have that literally, that paste paper literally ripped off his, his, his Oval Office desk. That's because there were people with sort of general foreign policy instincts or professionalism. And if you don't have that anymore, then it's more Trump unbounded. It's America first on steroids. So we're going to leave you there. Um, I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for his very hard work on our episodes and encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.